I think we should get going. We, as usual, have a lot of material to cover. Uh, now, there are a lot more faces, familiar faces, and some not so familiar that are here this morning. And uh, what I'd like to do is, for the benefit of those who were not here last week, uh, point out a couple of things. You have before you, this one's on legal paper, but you should have uh, a copied version of this, which is an outline of the course material. And uh, I apologize for the fact that it's handwritten, but I could not find a co-ed who would be willing to work for 50 cents a page to type, <laughs> to type, uh, type this material. Things have changed. Um, and you'll notice that what it basically is trying to do, if you just kind of glance through the first couple of pages, two or three pages, is to make the point, well, several points, but the foremost of which is that what we're looking at over a period of about 350 to 400 years is the gradual shifting of a worldview in the world's largest Western empire. That is to say that the fundamental assumptions about society and the world were stood on their head by Christianity. The Roman pagan world had much more in common with the countries that it swallowed up than it did with Christianity. And if you look at the first page, um, it has some concepts, fundamental concepts about that the Romans had regarding how their world should be organized. They believed in dominance. It was a world of power. They believed in hierarchy. They believed in religious diversity. No ancient culture that I am aware of ever declared war on another ancient culture for religious reasons. Never. It took the Muslims and it took the Christians to add that innovation. Now the Romans were perfectly happy for you to have as many gods and worship as many gods as you wanted. There is also a fundamental reverence for the ways, traditions, and religious precepts of ancestors. Rome begins in about 700 BC. Seven hills overlooking one of the world's great swamps, otherwise known as Charleston. And they died like flies from malaria and all kinds of things. But over time, obviously, they came to be the dominant power on the Italian peninsula. And in the course of doing that, uh, they had a long social and religious tradition, which they held very, very dear, even though they went out and conquered the known world. They were always looking forward, uh, backwards rather, nostalgically to what they saw as a golden age of Rome 
as an agrarian republic. And they were a republic for hundreds of years. Um, and then if you look below that, it'll outline some basic principles that were advanced by Christianity, including uh, the fact that it was an ethic of love and service towards all, that they built up service facilities like hospitals, charitable institutions. They believed in the equality of all persons, regardless of rank, before God. And this is important. They believed in religious exclusivity. You could not add Jesus to your potpourri of what we would call and what they called pagan gods. So uh, Roman paganism was uh, rather elaborate. You can see some of uh, underheading uh, Roman numeral one. You can uh, see some of the major uh, characteristics of it. Uh, you could add or subtract gods at will. Uh, there was not an emphasis on dogma. There was an emphasis, however, on civic worship. That is communal worship by the populace at large, particularly regarding the major gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. Jupiter and Mars and Venus and Athena and all the other major gods. There were other gods. There were minor gods. There were variations on the major gods. And as a matter of fact, the favorite trick of the Romans was anytime they conquered you, they simply hyphenated one of their major gods with your local god. If they thought there were some characteristics that made them seem like slightly different variations, this desire for hierarchy. Within that desire for hierarchy, though, there was also a belief in henotheism. Henotheism simply means that, yes, we've got all these gods, but ultimately we have to put them in order, and somewhere at the top is the ultimate chief god. And these ideas were very, very, very well developed by the Greeks. Um, if you go to page two, again, just uh, to review, there one, uh, or rather I, says that there were no propositional statements, therefore there was no orthodoxy or heresy. It was unknown. Uh, there was very little concern in the Roman world to relate religion to ethics. That was the field of philosophy's duty. And so uh, we have Epicurean philosophies, the widely dominant Stoic philosophy. You've heard all these terms over the years. Well, that's where people drew their rules for living. We, as Christians and as Muslims and as Jews, use as our touchstone about behavior, we refer to a supranational or superhuman power. For ethics in the pagan world, it was consensus horizontally within the community. Now, were there limits of religious tolerance? I've said that they were very tolerant. Yes, there were. 
the most famous example of religious intolerance was in 186 BC, where uh, the devotees of Bacchus, the god of wine, women, and song, but also hysteria, madness, murder, rape, assault, had become very, very popular and it had percolated down in the Roman Republic through all the different classes. And they used to go off into the woods and do things which would raise hair even today. Well, finally, the authorities had enough. They rounded up 7,000 roughly of the devotees to the god Bacchus, regardless of their hierarchy, rich, poor, and everybody in between. And after a brief deliberation, they killed 7,000 of them. Boom. That was the end of that particular problem. But that was a very, very rare exception. Uh, however, the other thing that they really, really did not tolerate was atheism. If you were not willing to worship the gods whose goodwill supported the success of the state, the empire, then you were a danger, a big danger. So atheism was uh, not looked upon with favor. And you couldn't say, um, well, I worship in private. They didn't care about your worship in private. That was fine. You had your little household gods up on the mantelpiece, you know, the god of the kitchen. How many of you have or have had at one time a kitchen witch in your kitchen? I have. Uh, didn't keep me from burning anything, but I had a kitchen witch, and that's an example of a household god which came up through the Middle Ages all the way from ancient Rome, and, uh, or you may have uh, a foo dog, you know, a Chinese foo dog by the entrance to your house to keep out the evil spirits. You know. That was fine. You could worship those in private. But when the major holidays came around, you needed to present yourself publicly. I think some of you can see where this might be going. So now we're on page three. And I just want to um, emphasize um, the, this is where we really start the new material, uh, the relationship between the church and the state. Um, the purpose of the civic worship was to preserve the Pax Deorum, that is, keep the gods at peace through public demonstrations, sacrifices, festivals, etc. Placate the gods. Uh, number two, uh, I've mentioned the reverence for uh, ancestors. Well, that had a term also, which you'll see on page three, the mas maiorum. That meant the collective wisdom of the majority of tradition. Um, and number three, the pervasiveness of Roman religion. It seems like you could keep digging in Italy and throughout Turkey and you'd never run out of statues of gods. What was that all about? Well, the nearest analogy I can think of to why these gods were everywhere, not just in the temples, everywhere, 
was that in a way they functioned like totems, rabbit's feet, but more persuasively they functioned like icons. They were not worshipped themselves, that's a myth, that's just not true. They used them the way that the Eastern Church and the Catholic Church uses statuary and paintings and so on to inspire you, to make you reflect upon the relationship, your relationship, but the state's relationship to the divine powers. Uh, and again, you may say, well, that's very odd, is it? How many of you ever gone to Switzerland? And you go through the back roads and there are these little, little uh, uh, shrines or the Dolomites in northern Italy through the trails and there's a little shrine to the Virgin Mary of a little box and on a pole with flowers on it and so on. Or in Ireland, you go to Ireland and what do you find at the ancient, ancient crossroads? A cross. So this idea of taking your religion with you and putting it all around you to create an ambiance is not obsolete. Uh, finally, uh, the mystery religion. Some of you probably have heard of that, those rather, and uh, we're going to get into uh, this, and I'll touch on it more when we get to uh, some of the later Roman emperors. But suffice it to say that the uh, mystery religions, and the most famous ones include the worship of Isis, uh, Mithras, uh, Demeter, these were later evolutions of religious culture that did have initiation rites, in effect, baptisms, that were cultic in the true sense that we think of cults, a closed group whose uh, catechism would make, qualify you to be potentially brought into this organization and wisdom, hidden secrets would be revealed. Can you say Rosicrucians? Something that we still have today. Or Ruby Ridge. Or David Koresh. These people all believed that they were somehow in touch with something more spiritual, more profound. Well, let's look now at uh, factors that helped Christianity grow. We're still on page three, and I'm going to start off just by reading a list of things that Gibbon, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, um, the, the touchstone points, bullet points that Gibbon, in his massive study. Well, first of all, he said, um, Christians had a spiritual superiority. And Gibbon was an 18th century scholar, but he was a religious man, and he said, um, the Christians succeeded because it was God's will that they succeed. Well, I, I don't think anybody here will argue with that. But getting to more of a historical perspective, he said, number one, they were inflexible and intolerant uh, in their zeal with regards to anybody other than themselves. And that gets back to what I said about the fact that you could not be a nominal Christian and keep worshiping everybody else. So you either were in and everybody else was out or you wouldn't be let into the Christian community. And number two, and this can't be 
minimized. The doctrine of immortality. There was no such doctrine essentially in the pagan world. Homer thought that after you died, you went to some gray area uh, where uh, you weren't really human, but you, you weren't not really dead. Uh, Virgil, coming a thousand years later, thought that you might go to the Elysian fields. He was the closest to imagining immortality and heaven. And those of you that picked up the poetry there, you'll find the fourth eclogue of Virgil in there, which gives you the flavor of probably the most advanced pagan thinking at the time of Jesus. Uh, the miracles, that was a big selling point. Uh, the strict morality now, we know that the Roman Empire could get pretty rambunctious morally. But remember I said there's always that looking over your shoulder at the good old days, and Roman Republican virtue was very, very strict. So there was a nostalgia for it, a nostalgia. You know, you'd sin six days a week and repent on the seventh. But they never forgot that there had been a better moral code. Um, and finally, uh, they had a wonderful, the Christians had a wonderful ecclesiastical organization. The Roman temples and the worship of the various gods functioned independently. Now, it is true uh, that the emperor did have the title of Pontifex Mas uh, Maximus, Pontifex Mas Maximus, meaning the highest priest. But he rarely interfered in, in matters of religion. For the big celebrations, he would be there. But even though the Pope took his title, the Pope has much more to do with actual doctrine because for, for um, the Roman emperor, he was simply, in the hierarchy, the closest to the gods. So, of course, he would be the mediator with the gods. Um, another thing, another difference in terms of Christian organization is that Christianity is a totalizing religion. And what do I mean by that? Well, as it evolved over these hundreds of years and doctrine became firmed up, the Christians began to expand the role of the church in defining the quality of life in virtually every facet of your life. You might not obey the rule, you might honor it in the breach, but it began to start defining proper conduct uh, between Christians, between Christians and those who weren't Christians. How about in the family? In the Roman family, the Roman father was uh, the patria potentatus. Not just for his immediate family, but as he became the senior male in an extended family, you couldn't get married. You, you couldn't travel. You, you couldn't do anything unless you got the blessing from the Godfather. As a matter of fact, uh, if he wanted to kill you, 
back in the late days of the Republic, he could kill you and he could get away with it. He had absolute control over life and death. Now granted, that began to modify as the Roman Empire went on, but that's an example of where the Romans historically were coming from. So the idea uh, that a religion, instead of just appeal, appeasing the gods, would now begin to start telling you how you should be treating one another was an absolute novelty. How people treated each other in the Roman world was based on who was more powerful. I mean, over 60% of the entire population were slaves, at least. They had no rights whatsoever. Uh, this chair had as many rights as a slave had. So this was a remarkable innovation. And you would link your treatment and judgment in the hereafter to what you did now. Nobody ever heard of such a thing before. So what were the uh, incentives for the pagans? And as I said, that's a word that Christian writers gave to those who were not Christians. Uh, pagan simply means peasant. Um, and they had, the Germans had, uh, Germans, the Romans had no uh, specific word for religion. If you go to a, a Latin dictionary now, you'll find a word, but you wouldn't have found it 2,000 years ago. It was what it was. It's part of life. Well, let's see. Incentives. Um, for one thing, it was open to the lower social orders and to women independently. Another novelty. And one, which we know from Acts and, and from Luke, just all these heroes, heroines rather, of the early church, right alongside the heroes of the early church. It was a community, and that appealed to many Romans. How many of us occasionally, and I've only been here 20 some odd years, how many of us occasionally just look around and say, boy, this place isn't what it used to be. I used to know everybody in town. <laughs> well, well, think about the Roman Empire. It started out with a bunch of little plague-filled villages. Now it commands the entire known world. Rome, there will not be a city the size of Rome in the West until 19th century London. So people were migrating in from the communal rural areas and they felt lost. So where did they go? Well, they went to the baths. Baths were open to everybody. And they went to the civic religious ceremonies and they formed guilds and things like that. Well, here was an organization which had a structured community that could impact almost every part of your life. If you were ill, if you lost your job, what did the church do? It supported you. When you hear that somebody is ill and has had a setback, what do you ladies do? Casseroles to the rescue. Well, this tradition goes back 2,000 years. But it was not known as a, an established custom in the Roman world. Uh, healthcare. The Christians set up the first hospitals dedicated hospitals. Now, were there hospital facilities or healers or physicians? Of course there were. Luke, we know, 
was a physician. But the, as far as institutions which would take all comers, this was a Christian invention. And they would take all comers. Um, if you look at, uh, well, let, let, let me go on a little bit further, excuse me. Uh, I'm going to read to you something about the church community. And um, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well, everyone can see that people lack aid from us. Who do you think, just give me a guess as to you think might have said that. What class of person in the Roman hierarchy? This was the last great pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, who'd been raised as a Christian and turned his back on Christianity. So when he makes this observation, He's not charitably disposed, but he is looking at why paganism's failure to provide these kinds of social welfare systems had led people to begin to turn their, is one of the factors leading uh, them to turn their back on traditional Roman religion. Uh, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing in themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and layman. Well, this is a Christian author, uh, uh, Felicius Minimus, uh, writing in the early second century. I hope I've got that name right. Um, and, uh, excuse me, I take that back. It's uh, Dionysius, who was an apologist for Christianity, same time period. Um, so these were examples of devotion to tending everybody that impressed people very much. And uh, you may, those of you who know the Black Death that swept through 14th century Europe and eliminated anywhere from 50% to perhaps 60% of the population, the highest casualty figures were amongst the clergy, the monks, the nuns, and the clergy, because they ran the hospitals. Okay, so. Christian miracles. Here's something else that really impressed the pagans. Because it indicated the presence of an active God operating in this world via his believers as opposed to dead idols. 
And we all know that there are many, many miracles if we go to uh, the miracles of Peter. You'll see a listing of some of the miracles there that you can cross-reference. Uh, then we have Paul, his famous raising of the dead child. We have Martin of Tours. Now, Martin of Tours was a cavalryman in the Roman army who converted to Christianity. And of course, the famous uh, story about Martin of Tours is that he's riding along on his horse and he's got his big official army cape and so on. And um, he comes across a mendicant in the road who's freezing to death. And so uh, he's asking for alms and what does Martin do? He takes off his cloak, gives it to the man. The man says, oh, I can't take your cloak. So he takes out his sword, and I'm wondering what's going through this guy's uh, head at this time. But what he does is he cuts the cloak in half, and each one gets half. Well, that was the very famous story of Martin. But Martin, after he got drummed out of the core, so to speak, was known for uh, doing some other things. Um, and here's a, a description of Martin going around the countryside. The pagan villagers stand by helplessly as he tears their sacred places down to the foundation, smashes its altars, and reduces the idols to dust. Once he is finished, the pagans realize that they have been frozen in place and unable to move, transfixed by a divine power to prevent them from interfering with the man of God. As a result, nearly all of them believed in the Lord Jesus, claiming openly and confidently that they should worship the God of Martin and forsake the idols that had been unable to assist either them or others. Uh, that's another early Christian writer, Sulpicius Severus. Uh, not Severus Snape, Sulpicius Severus. Severus. Okay. I can see you're not Harry Potter fans. Um, uh, and so there are many, many, many other people that were known for doing miracles, which very much impressed. Uh, terrors of the afterlife, yes. If you could avoid that, it made Christianity very appealing. And then to segue uh, into persecutions, one of the things that astonished the pagans during the persecutions was the concept of martyrdom. It impressed them mightily that people were willing to go through the most gruesome tortures and methods of execution for an abstraction. Now, there were plenty of brave Romans, and there are plenty of brave Romans in Roman folklore who die for the country. How many of you are familiar with the uh, famous painting by Jacques-Louis David, The Oath of Horatii? where the father potentatus is offering his three sons the three swords, and they are swearing on their swords that they will not allow the enemy to defeat Rome. 
and they all go out and die for the sake of protecting the homeland. But this, to them, made no sense at all. And yet these were rational, seemingly rational people, many of them from eventually upper classes. And uh, so finally, um, here's Minutius Felix. Um, he made an observation that it is not possible to endure torments without the aid of God. But he was a pagan author. That's an example of the kind of, and pagan intellectual. Uh, Tertullian lives in the late second century. A Christian writer, famous for writing, uh, for being the first Christian apologist to employ the term trinity. His famous quote, the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Um, Justin Martyr, another name that you come across. He died in 165. Um, he was the great innovator with the concept of the, of the logos. He made that connection between pagan philosophy and the life of Christ. Uh, he uh, was a correspondent with emperors, but felt afoul of the law and uh, was beheaded. Uh, Bishop Polycarp. <laughs> Bishop Polycarp was well into his 80s. Now, the average person at this time died by the time they were 40. He was in his 80s. Uh, he'd been made a bishop by St. John. That's how old he was. Matter of fact, he's one of the few bishops that we have records of who was actually made a bishop by an apostle. Um, and uh, they decided that um, they would, uh, they were gonna burn him. And so uh, Polycarp, when he heard this and refused to renounce Christ, he turned to the consul who was running his trial. And he said the following, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and is after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Well, tied him to a stake, burned him. Flames didn't touch him. They reloaded, they loaded up the fire again. Fired it up again. Flames wouldn't touch him. At this point, people were pressed for time. So they took out a bunch of swords and they stabbed him to death. Um, okay, so you have, did everybody get a, this graph here they, uh, with the numbers on it? Uh, if not, there are a few.
Now, it's difficult to say just how many people were in the Roman Empire at any one time. They did take a census, but the census was for taxation purposes. And the census, for example, didn't count slaves. Um, but some pretty smart people have been looking at this for some time. And we do have some sources. Um, we do know that Christianity grew much faster in the eastern half of the empire, which would be modern-day Turkey, Holy Land, North Africa. Um, in Acts 2.41, we're told that there were 3,000 converts. If we go to 4.4 in Acts, we have 5,000 converted. If we go to 5.14 in Acts, it says multitudes were converted. Christian sources are a little difficult to trust. Um, good old Minutius Felix, who we just heard from, uh, writing after Tertullian, that is, in the middle of the third century, indicates that Christians are still few. And Origen, who traveled all over as a teacher from the first half of the third century, acknowledges that many people in the empire, let alone barbarians outside of it, have never heard of Christianity. Um, some very, very bright people have estimated, including Harnack, who's a name that is to be reckoned with in the history of Christianity, that 5% uh, of the population in the Roman Empire uh, may have been Christian in the second century. We know from the study of first names in Egypt, and the name for this obscure field is onomastics. Now, most people in the Roman Empire had three names. A prenomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. The prenomen would be our given name. The nomen would be your cult or your tribe, rather, that you belong to. Your cognomen would be either a name that you picked out for yourself or people gave to you because of some characteristic, uh, like uh, Scipio Africanus, the great destroyer of Carthage. Well, Africanus was added to his name, added to his name after he leveled Carthage in memory of his success in Africa. Um, so we find at the end of the third century that Christian first names are rare. From 318 to 330, 50% of all children are being given Christian first names. By the end of the fourth century, 90% of all children are getting Christian first names. There's an example of an explosive population in this particular part of the empire. But the empire is so big that things develop at different speeds and different places. Uh, there's not a uniformity in the Roman Empire. 
communications were not quick enough to have that kind of uniformity, either culturally or legally. The fact that the, the, empire, uh, the uh, emperor in Rome might say, off with their heads. Well, it might take three years <laughs> for, that, for that to get out into the nether reaches of the empire, by which time there might be a different emperor. I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question? We're, 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 we're going to talk a little bit about that, but you're going to have to show up um, a little bit later, okay, if you want to find out about that. All right. So, uh, Harnack and Trombley uh, had an estimate that in 312 AD, 50% of Asia Minor, Cyprus, and Armenia uh, were Christian. Less than 50% Antioch, Spain, Egypt, Italy, and Minor in Arabia, Palestine. That's interesting. Uh, Germany, Upper Italy, but that's the land of barbarians. And so paganism is still very strong in Germany. And here's the thing that this graph is going to talk to you about. I've said that Christianity was an exclusive and exclusionary religion in the sense that you could not keep your pagan gods. You were either Christian or you were not. What that means is that every time a Christian or a missionary converts someone, there's not only one more Christian, but there's one less pagan. It's a zero-sum game. Now, Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of the world. Well, if you start looking at numbers and you think of compound interest, all right, we got 10% interest on a dollar. Then we have 10% interest on a dollar ten. Then we've got 10% interest, et cetera, et cetera. As the number gets bigger and bigger, the rate does not have to increase in order to get astonishing changes in total numbers of people. And that's what the bottom graph shows you. It's done verbally, mathematically up here. But this is through about 400, year 400. So, uh, plus the fact that if a father or a mother decided to convert to Christianity, it generally meant the whole family did. You couldn't pick and choose your religion. If the father said, we're all going to become Christians, and if the mother, who's like any wife I've ever known, said, we're going to do this, uh, the father would say, all right, all right. Right. And, and so the whole family became Christians. So it's estimated that you only needed a conversion rate of about 2.5% per year to wind up being 50% of the 60 million in the Roman Empire by the year 400. So I think we ought to stop there. Uh, anybody have a question? Except about the Council of Nicaea. Now I promise you, 
that next week, the moment you've all been waiting for, we'll finally get here. We're going to start throwing people to the lions. We're going to start burning people. And we're going to start getting into the nitty gritty of what I know you're all here for, which is uh, Ben-Hur, you know, that kind of thing. No questions? Okay. Thank you.